So we're finishing up chapter 6 in the fourth gospel as we're looking at verse 60 through 71, the final passage. <clears throat> it's something of an appendix, really, to the discourse on the bread of life that we've spent some time going through. So a rather long chapter, and Jesus has been uh, in a familiar format, beginning with, of course, the feeding of the 5,000 and then moving on to his discourse, and now this sort of uh, appendice, this sort of uh, conclusion, if you will, uh, to that whole discourse and everything that took place there. It's interesting because when you reflect on the fact that the text says that there was 5,000 men that were fed that day, and so we can assume that there are quite a few others as well, women and children, but where did all of these thousands come from? I mean, Capernaum is where he is, and, well, there's, there's, there's 1,700 people in Capernaum, but that's not nearly enough to make up for all the people that were there in terms of the thousands so that we can have a proper picture of what is actually going on and in this very significant portion of the text. But in Mark's gospel, in chapter 3, verse 7 and 8, we learned that where some of the people had come from. They've come from far away. So they're not just from Galilee. They are from Galilee around the surrounding area on the northern part of the Sea of Galilee. But also they are from Judea. They are from Jerusalem. They're even from the region of Idumea, the text discloses, which is south even of Jerusalem, which goes all the way down to Beersheba. So this is quite a ways that people have traveled as they heard about the Christ and they're following him now in these throngs, these great numbers. So he reaches uh, Capernaum then finally you remember how the story was told and we're going to read through this first and then we'll pick up from there with our, uh, with our introduction. Verse 60 to the end of the chapter, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of the disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. Father, we thank you for your word and what you will do here this morning as we give you our rapt attention on these words. And Lord, they find their way into our hearing by your sovereignty. And we are at this particular place in John's gospel by your hand of providence. And we ask, Lord, that you give us understanding. Help us to understand why what you mean, rather, by these rather enigmatic statements, statements of consuming your body and drinking your blood and, uh, well, all the rest of the things from the discourse that have been so confounding for these that have turned away. Help us to understand because they all have very important purpose behind them, that you might be glorified is always our ongoing desire. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So by most accounts, with all these thousands that are now following him, by most accounts, people would consider this a successful 
venture of Christ, a sort of grassroots movement in his global enterprise to spread his gospel. They think, well, he's got a good start. And he does have that in mind. He does have the proliferation of the gospel around the world in mind, of course, and he will accomplish that. He's still accomplishing that now, as you well know. But these thousands of people, do you think that that justifies, that, that validates, that proves that he is who he said he was? Because that makes sense to us. Because our tendency, our propensity is always to count things. And so we're seeing thousands of people follow him. And so naturally back then, the disciples, we would forgive them for thinking, here we go. Here we go. These thousands will be with us now and they'll follow us. And this is just going to snowball from here. Down from here, from Galilee to the region of Judea to the region of Idumea. And from there, who knows? Thousands and tens of thousands that's how we think. I mean, it's, it's natural for us to think that. However, this is not his plan. His plan is not only to use thousands. His plan is actually to launch this global enterprise for the gospel with 11 men. Not even the original 12. He's pointing out, of course, that the 12th, if you will, the Judas is a devil. He seems to have no shortage of confounding statements. Why would he say that? Why do, why do we finish that chapter that way? 11. And you have literally thousands, perhaps, that have walked away. It, it, it's been troubling, and that's why we've We've brought it up from time to time, knowing how this thing ends, that there were so many, many of his disciples turned and walked away. Well, if you're going to get this around the globe because you're including the Gentiles, that's a lot of ground to cover. Why would you say things that turn people away? That's counterintuitive at least, isn't it? <laughs> it doesn't make any sense to our minds. Bigness always makes sense to us. Quantification is always how we measure things, like success. How successful is that corporation? Well, is it growing? Is the profit growing? What's the stock doing? We count, measure, and we weigh. That's our context. I don't fault that. I mean, it's how we are. It's the context we're in. We have a clock. We have time. God doesn't. We have math. He invented that and gave that to us. He's seeing how we steward all of these wonderful resources. And so we often in our fallen state, because we are often confounded, we're, we're, we're sort of bum-fuzzled over, why, why, would, why would you say these things? You can almost see his immediate disciple, uh, disciples on the side going, whoa, what's he saying now? You have to eat my body, my flesh, and drink my blood. You on board? What's he saying that for? This is a hard statement. That word is hard. That word in the Greek is hard. It means fierce. It's vicious. This is cannibalistic. This isn't just offensive to us. This is appalling. How can you talk like that? How can you say things like that. Why couldn't you at least save that for maybe later on? Can't you dial it down a little bit? Couldn't you sort of soft pedal it a little bit? Prepare us for what we're about to hear. Couldn't you explain it? Couldn't you elaborate? He doesn't do any of those things. He speaks the truth. You're losing a lot of people, Lord, they could be thinking. The disciples, that is. The number of true disciples is small because his hard sayings are landing on soft heads. It's bludgeoning them. What? What is this? What is he talking about? It's, the entire message was totally unreasonable to them. It's jarring. It's bracing. 
It's polarizing. I don't want any of that. I was on board while you were doing things that I liked, things that I approved of. I'm with you. Man, I, I'm one of the Edomians. I came a long way just to hear you. What is this? What are you talking about? Uncompromising speeches will not compromise on the truth. He won't garnish it. Did you notice? Truth is typically concise, isn't it? If you do this, you will die. This and you will live. Right? It's... I like how the Bible puts things in antithesis. And it's very clear. It's either light or it's dark. It's either right or it's wrong. I'm glad. For a simple-minded man, you're, you're happy about that because it's very, very clear. There's nothing to equivocate with what God says, with what Jesus says. Nothing. He makes it deliberately, I believe, so that there's, you, there's no handle for somebody who wants to argue, who somebody who's opposed to that truth can grab a hold of. It's like there's nothing there. That's right. So you're either going to follow me or you're going to walk away. It's polarizing. It's polarizing. It always will be. It hasn't changed. His uncompromising speeches were staggering to sin-soaked minds. These, these things he's saying were devastating to sinful lifestyles. They, it would shatter them in terms of the things that they pursued and the condition of their heart, the things that they understood. Remember what Paul said we were talking about at the first hour to the letter to the Philippians. It's a, those things that I knew are trash. They're rubbish. Wow. Okay. He's just speaking the truth. Dare we call it unloving? Is it harsh? How do you define it when it comes? How do you receive it? What do you do about it? That's the question I ponder. He said, have they stopped being hard sayings? Let me just ask that. Have they stopped being hard sayings? No. Why? Because we have the same plight that they did. What is it? We're fallen people. And so we seek things that we approve of. We seek things that make us feel good, yeah? And yet he speaks the truth. He speaks the truth. He's never tempted to soft-pedal anything or compromise anything. Why? Well, friends, because your souls hang in the balance. Do you want the truth covered up, garnished, soft-pedaled, when your eternal destiny is on the line? That would be the height of foolishness, wouldn't it? So this is how he speaks. He speaks in polarizing ways, uncompromising ways. And now he lost, who knows, untold thousands maybe? There was an English writer in the first part of the 20th century who wrote this. This is a great bit of writing, I think on this topic. I believe it to be a grave mistake to present Christianity as something charming and popular with no offense in it. Seeing that Christ went about the world giving the most violent offense to all kinds of people, it would seem absurd to expect that the doctrine of his person can be so presented as to offend nobody. Oh, wow. We cannot blink at the fact that gentle Jesus, meek and mild, was so stiff in his opinions and, and so inflammatory in his language that he was thrown out of a church, stoned, hunted from place to place, and finally crucified as a firebrand and a public danger. Whatever his peace was, 
It was not the peace of an amiable indifference, end quote. No indifference with him, no apathy, no equivocation, no gray areas. And then he handed this to us. What will you do with it? And when we reflect on what some do with it, we shudder, or we should shudder. Saying things that will only please man. Am I pleasing man now? Paul wrote to the Galatians, chapter 1, verse 10. Am I pleasing, pleasing man now? <laughs> if I were, I, I, I would not be pursuing Christ. Because pursuing Christ naturally implies, therefore, from his statement, that it's going to be most, what? Displeasing to men. It should hurt. Why? For that same reason, because we're all still sinners. It still hurts. Does salvation preserve you from the hard jolt of the truth? <laughs> no. Unless you find a way to just put up some kind of a grid <laughs> before you're hearing. So you just smile and nod, and it's of not effect. Is he here? Is he here? Yes, in his word and by his spirit. Why? Because he loves you. He's here. In his love, should he withhold that truth? Should he soft pedal it, make it easier for you? Come on. Chapter 5, he does the same thing, remember? So he intentionally heals this man on the Sabbath. You remember that? It's intentional. He did that on purpose. This is the firebrand that he was, that she's talking about. He's irritating the legalistic religionists is what he's doing. Do you want to be healed? Remember when he asked him that? And then I mentioned in that sermon that it's a question he's asking. Do you really want to be healed? That's how it gets done. Because you have an infection and it has to be pierced. Does that sound like something that feels good? No. I know it isn't in my experience. So the stage is set for a speech that he would give. It's the same drill in five as it is in six. So he's healing somebody, but he gets their ire up by doing it. He, he did it on purpose. He's firing them up. Why? So that he could just make a speech about how he's equal with the Father. Remember? Equal in honor as well. So therefore, equal in worship. Worthy of worship as the Father. Wow, sounds like an instigator. Really, can I say that with reverence? It sounds like that. At least that's what I know you or I would be accused of. You're just, you're just saying things intentionally because this is going to stir us up and make us upset. Well, you did it. I'm upset. Good. Now listen to me. Now listen. That's what he's saying. And boy, he rolls it out, doesn't he? He rolls it out in chapter 5. He's rolled it out again in chapter 6. Another inflammatory claim. I am the bread of life come down from heaven. I imagine a pause there and him looking them right in the eye. Yes, you heard that right. Coming down from heaven. Yes, in assuming that that's what I just said, that I am who I actually am by making that statement that I came down from heaven. Should I say it again? And he does. He does. It's one thing when you say something you're like, whoa, I bet that was a little bit jarring. Let me repeat it. He definitely wasn't after a popularity contest, was he? No, they... They killed him. They killed him. In the most brutal, vile, unjust way. So this appendix to that whole discourse on the bread of life, this that we've looked at, it's this 
passage we're on now is about faith. It's, it's about belief. It's about truth. It's about trust. It's about sovereignty and loyalty. It's about the words of Christ and the will of man. You see, the words of Christ are sent out deliberately to meet your will. Glad that's over because we're saved now? (laughs) You know better than that because you're still willing to do things that you know he's opposed to. He's still sending out his word to caution you. Don't do that or you will die. What do we do with it? Shining on? Hang the messenger? How dare he say that the way he said that? This is, I don't know why, but it just makes me angry. The words of Christ come and the will of man is tested. Now that's in this outline because that is axiomatic and it's timeless. It's not just for that time. It's not just for unbelievers. It's for believers. It's always meeting our will. It's always testing us to see what we will do when it comes into our airspace, into our heads. What you do with the truth is the true measure of who you are in terms of your relation with the living Christ. You can't take some and not and leave other things behind. This isn't a buffet. Words of Christ come and man is tested. It's a maxim for believers and unbelievers throughout all ages, all cultures. God sends out his word universally to every one who will hear with ears to hear. Praise the Lord. And so, Jesus said in verse 53, He said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no life in you. This stands their understanding, their mosaic belief on its head. Why? Well, because of what they believed and what they held to and what they practiced, they wouldn't consume any blood. Why? Because God, God said so. <laughs> That's the simple letter. You had a better answer, but I was giving you the simple one. <laughs> yeah, I've got it for you. Leviticus seventeen fourteen. Listen to this, because this is absolutely key. It struck me in the study. I thought, oh my goodness. Here it is. Here's why. For the life of every creature is in its blood. Its blood is its life. Why is Moses repeating that? I got it. Therefore, I have said to the people of Israel, you shall not eat the blood of any creature for the life of every creature is in its blood. Three times in one verse. Wow, this is important. This is absolutely critical. The life is in the blood. So for the creature, you do not consume blood. Jesus shows up to those who know every jot and tittle of this Mosaic law. And he says, Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink His blood, you have no what? Life. I am the life. The life is in my blood. So if you don't consume me, if you don't drink my blood, you have no life in you because the life is in the blood. Isn't that outstanding? Praise the Lord. 
it, it strikes you. It blows you back. It's like, wow, this is what was supposed to happen to them. Oh, I get it now. No, too much pride, too much truth. See, he doesn't hold back. He doesn't like weigh into topics that are going to be rough. He lets them fly. He lets them rip. You must drink my blood or you have no part in me. You have no life in you because I am the life. I am the life. If you want my life, you must consume me and drink my blood. Obviously, he doesn't mean literally his blood. I think you get that. But quite literally, it has to be him consumed. Not just, oh, I believe in Jesus. Oh, not just things we talked about in the first hour, you know, walked down the aisle, cried, prayed a prayer. Whoa, it's so much more than that. It's so very much more. That's why Paul, I mentioned this first hour, loves that statement, and Christos, Christ in me, the hope of glory, Christ in me. Wow. His blood, his body. And so I died that he might live. I, Paul says, have been crucified with that Christ. I no longer what? Live. What does he say after that? But Christ lives in me. His blood, his body. This is the body of Christ. This is his blood coursing through our veins. We are dead to ourselves. It's funny they didn't hang him right here. Stone him, right? For a blasphemer. They, they, they were too much of a, a cowards to do it in chapter 5 when it said in verse 18, they, they, they want to kill him all the more. They, they can't wait to kill him. Verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? Many of his disciples. Hard is scleros. Scleros is also uh, part of the medical nomenclature. I had a grandmother who died in April of 1967 of something called arteriosclerosis. But it also means harsh. It's not just hard. I mean, if you just leave it at that, which is accurate, it's not enough. It means unpleasant. It, it means strict. It means cruel. It means merciless. It means fierce. This is a vicious statement. Who can listen to this? So they were not only offended by what Jesus said, now they are aghast. They're appalled. Verse 61, But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, He knows they are. Do you take offense at this? He could add, You do, don't you? I can see by your faces you're offended by this. It's a hard truth, isn't it? I like where it says knowing in himself. So he didn't need to read what we call the halo data. He didn't need to look at their countenances. He didn't need to look at the, the grimace on their face. He knew. He knows mankind. He knows what's in the heart. You remember that from chapter 2 as it finished with verses 23 to 25. There were those who he would not entrust himself to because even though they said they believed because he knew men. He knows them. This is 
This is a statement of deity right here. Yet another one. Verse 62. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Okay, follow now. That's <laughs> right. <laughs> what are you going to do when I go sailing off into heaven? If you think bread of life coming down from heaven was startling, wait till you're standing there with your mouths wide, wide open watching me ascend. <laughs> wow. What are you going to say about, how are you going to explain that away? Oh my word, what a glorious sight that had to be. Oh my. Oh. While they might, right, we can imagine this, while they might say, well, yes, then, then, then we would believe. He knows better than that. No, you wouldn't. That's why Abraham, Abraham's bosom is in, the, is in the Gospels, right? The rich man and Lazarus, the poor servant and all. It's like, whoa, this is going to be it? This Sheol, this hot place, is it? You got to be kidding me. Let me go back and tell my brothers. They'll repent, right? No, they won't. Seeing one, what? Rise from the dead. That's how strong our willfulness is, our pride is. We stand with our faces like flint against the truth. Wow. Get struck with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, and we split open on the spot. Wow. Verse 63, It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh has no avail. You're not going to do that by your own efforts. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. This, it is the Spirit who gives life, the words that I've spoken. That's the crux of the issue. This is a spiritual enterprise. If you understood that, you'd be able to take those hard statements. My words. It's my words. That get that done. It's my words that cause you not to just dislike me, but to want me gone. It's the words he spoke. It's not the works. My goodness, he's healing, he's feeding. No, it's his words. It always has been. And guess what? It always will be. John 8, 31 to 32. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him. I've mentioned this passage before. So he's got Jews that actually believed him. That's what the text says. He says to them, oh, if you abide in my what? Word, you are truly my disciples. My disciples. There's that wonderful possessive. Yeah, you actually belong to me. You're not just a follower. You're not just somebody who fills in a chair on Sundays. You actually are a follower of mine. If you abide in my word. Why? Because it's all about this. It's all about love. It's the love of Christ and the love that you have poured in your heart and that is returned back toward me. You love me so you'll abide in my word because that's where I'm speaking to you. And when I speak these hard statements to you, it's because I love you. And when you receive these hard statements, you receive them with contrition and brokenness. That gets you to the cross. That and that alone. It's humility, it's brokenness when the Word of God comes that gets the invitation into the tent of God. I invite in all those who are broken, all those who are humbled by my Word. Come, come, you belong to me. That's the only way to validate your profession of faith. Did we think it was our good works? Or were we quantifying something, our faithful church attendance or whatever service orientation we have. Wow, how wrong we, we can be. So it's not his works, but his words. That's in the outline too, so that you have that 
encapsulating important critical statement. It's not his works. It's not why they're walking away. It's his words. It always will be. Whenever Jesus did things that pleased the crowd, they followed him. As soon as he spoke, he was abandoned. He was abandoned, in this case, in droves, wasn't he? It's the same today. True followers of Jesus crave to hear him speak to them, even when his words hurt, even when they're hard to hear. They don't want to hang the messenger. I love Lawson's statement. I quote it every time I find occasion. The problem with preachers today is what? Nobody wants to kill them. Must be leaving something out. Because it's not a popularity contest. You preach the whole counsel of God and you'll be like the Apostle Paul, getting drug out of Lystra and stoned and left for dead. Or do we compromise? Verse 64, But there are some of you who do not believe. And here's that sovereignty again, that omniscience. Parenthetically, for Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who do who did not believe and who it was who would betray him. Oh. Oh, well this makes it easier for me to understand. It's easier for him to speak boldly to these people because he knows how many are going to walk away. Ah. Just thought of that now. <laughs> what have you been doing all week? I got it. Right? Am I right here? You're all going to leave. That frees me up to just preach the truth. We don't have that, that gift afforded us. We just preach the gospel, right? We just share the gospel and we see who stays and who goes, right? That's what we do. Verse 65, and he said, This is why I told you that no man can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. He's referring, of course, to verse 44. You, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me, what? Draws him. So this is sovereignty yet again. It has to be granted by my Father. His, your name has to be already pre-recorded in the book of life. And it's to those names that the Father sent me to save. His point, obviously, is that the heart and soul of mankind is so utterly bankrupt and so thoroughly depraved that you, no one would ever come. No one would ever come. They wouldn't. The will has to be transformed, doesn't it? There has to be some divine intervention that sheds light that, or we can see him with whom we were previously blind. When we see him, we're attracted, we're drawn. And he draws us with his words. And he draws us. And those are the ones who follow him. And so he asks the twelve, will you go too? Did he need to ask that question? Was he without that information? No, there's always a reason he asks things that he already knows the answer to. It's for our benefit. Are you going to go too? Will you go? That question confronts all of us. All the way through our lives as we're confronted with his words. When has he done sanctifying us? Whew, I could use a break. Right? You? When is he done? Oh, so you're saying that it's going to be for the rest of our lives. Yeah. He doesn't stop giving us truth because he loves us enough to continue to purify our lives. And as we have this expectation of his glorious return, 1 John 3, verse 2, we are purifying ourselves even as he is pure, for we will see him 
and become like him, for we will see him as he is. So somebody with that expectation is purifying their life. Look at it. On your own time. I've got to get going. I love Titus 3 for a concise description of this gospel we've been discussing this morning thus far. The heart saying all of it and what God is actually doing. Listen to what it says. Titus 3 verse 3 to 7. Now listen carefully. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But when the goodness and the loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness. That's why Jesus said, we just covered it in our passage, it's not the the flesh avails nothing. It's a spiritual enterprise by the Holy Spirit. He goes on here. He saved us not because of works done by us in righteousness, verse 5, but according to his mercy, by the washing of regeneration. There it is. He cleansed. He, he made the lights come on. He brought life into our hearts so that we could see and we could understand what's really true and be drawn to it. And renewal of the Holy Spirit. That's the point Jesus is making in our text. Verse 6, whom he poured out on us richly through Christ, Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. What a wonderfully encapsulating gospel passage that is. You could use that as you evangelize people that you care about and that you intersect with. It's all right there. It's all right there. Verse 66, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. By the verb tense, no longer walked with him, has permanency to it. They turned away permanently. They did not come back. How sad. Who were these people? Well, we can assume that a number of them, probably a good portion of them, he spent a lot of time with. These weren't strangers to him. He fed them. He healed. People were gathering. People followed him. You read through the Gospels. There was a, there was a batch of, of ladies that followed him. Remember that? When we go through the Gospel and we lead up to the cross, it was women that were there around the cross. And those, it was women that went to the tomb and so on. All of these people are following him. And, and, and they're drawn by him. And they're listening to him. And he's getting close with them. He is, after all, 100% man. These aren't strangers. These aren't people that he can just be cavalier about. He can't just be dispassionate about. He can't just, it can't just not affect him. Deeply, it grieves him. How does he square that with the omniscience that we just read about that he knew from the beginning the ones who would depart, the ones who would stay, and the ones who would go? He knows. He knew. He had to carry that grief in his heart. What other grief does he carry in his heart? How would you like, verse 71, 12 disciples and one of them is a devil. Yeah. What kind of love is this? These are not enemies. These are our friends. The word mathetes I mentioned last time was used there. Many of his disciples. These are disciples. It reminded me of Psalm 55, 12 to 14. For it is not an enemy who taunts me. Then I could bear it. That makes sense. That's not who the enemy is going to prompt to betray you. That's not who the world, the flesh, and the devil are going to inspire to betray you. It is not an adversary who deals insolently with me. Then I could hide from it. But it is you, 
a man my equal, my companion, my familiar friend, who used to take sweet counsel together. Within God's house, we walked in the throng. That's who betrayed him. That's who turned away. And if you're going to be shaken to the core of your faith, if God is pleased, that's who it will be for you and I. And it'll spin you around on your heels. Jesus didn't compromise his message in order to gain a larger crowd. Nor did he chase after them to clarify Well, if you would just clarify, because, man, you just made these crazy statements. If you would have just cleared it up. Now, he knows better than that. Besides, that's not what he came to do. He came to speak the truth. And that's it. It confronts. It's polarizing. It's a hard statement. It's fierce at times. But he doesn't run around. Well, let me explain. Let me elaborate on that. Sorry you misunderstood. Well, they didn't misunderstand, did they? Not a bit. That's why he doesn't do it. You heard what I said. And you still walked away. So friends, it strikes me. This is willful. It's willful. They just are willfully not They're willfully rejecting the living Christ. They're rejecting not his works, but what? His words. That's always going to be the case. Jesus wasn't a crowd pleaser, right? He's not interested in that. He's not interested in softening the message, as I mentioned before. Just to hold on to selfish, lukewarm, half-hearted so-called believers or followers. No, he's going to say things that are hard to hear. And he's not going to explain himself. It is what it is. I've said what I've said. And he just turns to the 12 and says, are you going to leave too? Will you go away? Wow. The loneliness of Christ. Could we talk about that a little while? Loneliness. All alone. He's got one objective. Proclaim the truth. That's it. Not seek approval. It's always their choice to leave and depart. So he's turning to the twelve in Verse 67, Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? So Jesus confronted the twelve in the same way he confronts all those who make a claim to follow him today. He confronts them saying, okay, now that you've heard this, you're just going to turn away? This is too hard. This is too hard a saying. I can't hear it. So I'm going to Blame you for saying it. I want you gone. I want you out of my life. So in self-absorbed, self-seeking, soft-headed cultures, his message always lands hard and people walk away. I heard a message on this text from a man who has been in ministry for over a half a century, faithfully proclaiming the truths of God's Word, faithfully for over 50 years. I want you to hear what he has to say. I can't comprehend the pain that our Lord suffered over the defection of these disciples, these students of his who turned their back finally and went away. But I do know in some small measure this difficult reality in ministry, biblical ministry, gospel ministry, certainly pastoral ministry has a sadness to it that never goes away. It's hard for me to hear that because he's been at it for over 50 years. 
it never goes away. And frankly, it accumulates the longer you do it. Oh. <laughs> Get out now. <laughs> Thank you. And it is the heartbreaking reality that people come, people hear, and people stay, and sometimes people actually profess, and then they turn their backs on the Lord Jesus Christ and they leave. I've seen it constantly in all the years, all the years of ministry, both here and beyond. It's not rare. It's not rare. Normal is what it is. Normal is what it is. It's the nature of ministry to see people who come and hear and stay for some measure of time and leave. It is the most painful of all spiritual experiences. It is the most discouraging of all. Not just because you don't get a return on the investment you made. Not because they forsake the preacher. Not because they forsake the people. Because they forsake the Lord. Remember the former days when you were enlightened. Remember your interest originally in the gospel. Remember how wonderful the message was when you first heard it. Remember how hopeful you were when you heard it, uh, when you heard about a sacrifice for sin and you heard about the promise of heaven. Remember. Remember. Remember your enlightenment when the truth first dawned on your mind. Look, remember those early days when it all seemed so wonderful and all so glorious and so hopeful. You joined with us. You actually got involved in ministry. These are people who are part of the church. These are disciples. You need endurance. That's what's in short supply with these who turn away. He goes on, it's hard being a Christian. You need endurance in the battle against sin. In this case, their own. To people associated with the church, people like you, there are some of you this morning, and this is the first time you've been here, and it may be the last. This is bold, friends. After... 50 plus years. Stop playing games here. Because of what you're going to hear, you're not going to like me. <laughs> and because I'm going to tell you what Jesus said, you may have a different view of him and not like him either. This may be the beginning and the end. There are others of you who have been here a while that you've been thinking you've had enough of this. You're over it. Whatever the original attraction was is gone. You're over this. You don't want this in your life. You're not really willing to give up your sin. And you're about to go. And maybe for some of you, this might be the last Sunday. There are some of you who are still in the throes of trying to make that decision. But down the road, you'll turn your back and walk away. And if you don't think that's a heartache beyond measure, you're wrong. This is reality in ministry. This is why ministry is this two-edged sword. You minister over a long you minister over a long period of time, many, many years, and you accumulate the joy of faithful true believers and you accumulate the sorrows of unfaithful defectors. So you're always kind of living in the tension of those things. It would be easy to say the longer you minister, the more you see the grace of God. And that would be absolutely true. But the more you minister, the more you see of those who turn their backs on the grace of God and walk away. There's a sadness. And I know that sadness. And the Lord knew it. Far, far beyond anything I could ever comprehend. End quote. Verse 68, Simon Peter said to him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the, what? Words of life. 69, and we believed. 
and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. That's the A answer, isn't it? He had that right in Matthew 16 too, didn't he? You are the Holy One, Son of God. Verse 70, Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now some overly sensitive evangelicals would, who are opposed to conflict of any kind might think that Jesus is being contentious here. But he isn't. He isn't. Jesus is being truthful. He's speaking the truth. That's all he does throughout the Gospels is speak the truth. He's exposing, by speaking the truth, the half-hearted followers. And you wonder how many churches could be emptied out if that were still the case today. If you could get preachers to commit to nothing but preaching the truth with faithfulness. The whole truth. This is his word, you could say, is his winnowing fork, isn't it? He's tossing the wheat and the tares up in the air. His word is doing that. And his word is what separates the chaff from blowing off and that the true wheat can be gathered. That's his winnowing fork. We're going to celebrate and commemorate, rather, communion. And in 1 Corinthians 11 is the text that I read from every time we do that. And just before the text that I read this morning, listen to what he says in the verses just before it, verses 17 to 19. But in the following instructions, Paul writes, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe, I believe it in part for there must be factions among you. There must be factions among you. In order that, here's the reason, the purpose, that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. So his word is his winnowing fork. So there's going to be factions because the wheat and the tares are together. And the half-hearted followers, when the truth meets them head on, meets the will of man head on in the heart of hearts, some are saying, I'm out. I'm out. And they turn away. Others don't. But that's the, the minority. Factions is a word that means disunion. It's a discoupling. It's a disconnection. There must be that disconnection. It's almost like the Lord is saying, I've got to disconnect those people who don't really belong to me in the church. How does he do that? He does it through the preaching of his word. It's the only validation that I can think of that legitimizes my profession of faith is how do I respond to his word? Is it convicting? That gets me to the cross. Or does it meet with my pride? I say, no, no. I'm not having any of it. And I turn away. In 1 Thessalonians 2, 4 Paul wrote, Just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, not to please man, but to please God, who tests our hearts. It's what he uses the gospel for. It's what he uses his word for, to test the heart of man. Verse 71, and we're done. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to to betray him. And you can read about that, of course, in John chapter 13. What you're going to do, do quickly. Yet he spent all this time with him, taught him, lived with them. It's amazing. So the tomb stood, the tomb of Joseph of Arimathea stood wide open, like a mouth ready to consume the body of our Christ. His blood running down from the cross like a great river it became that would fill the lifeblood of his body, the church.
That's what he was trying to tell them. And they wouldn't have it. Think about these things. Pray that you would be receptive even when the sayings are hard and you're thinking, who can listen to this? Because everything hangs in the balance. Everything. Father, thank you. Thank you so much for your patience with us. Thank you because yet another Sunday and we gather to worship you. We want to hear your word even when it's hard to hear. Lord, forgive us when we resist your word. It's not, it's not because we don't love you. We do, but we wrestle with loving ourselves more. Lord, help us now as we get ready for communion that, Lord, none of us are harboring ongoing patterns of sin. Maybe those things be settled now. You invite us at any time to bring these things with conviction and confession to the throne of your grace that we might receive forgiveness and then and only then be qualified to partake of the means of your sacrifice that brought about the payment for our sin and the offer of forgiveness. And we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.